and recording. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Ghost of Medjunk. I'm here tonight with Shane Hauser. <laughs> Shane, one of our favorite guest stars, practically another host, <laughs> subbing in for Travis because Travis is literally too too cool for school. Just wow. doesn't come in on the weekend. Wow. So Shane is saving the day so that I'm not here recording by myself Saturday <laughs> night. That would be really sad. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we are going to do the textbook readings on user and flexibility. Um, I checked out the supplementary reading and it looked pretty short and mm -hmm. had lots of nice images and floor plans and stuff, so you should check that one out on your own. Mm -hmm. And we'll do these couple chapters which are also quite short and sweet and this way everyone can understand a little bit of theory mm -hmm. because I know you're all working on your designs this, this weekend, so. <laughs> Shall we get right into it, Shane? Uh, yeah, why don't you start? Okay, <clears throat> so user was one of the last terms to appear in the canon of modernist discourse. Unknown before about 1950, the term became widespread in the late 1950s and 1960s on the wane in the 1980s. It has returned to currency in the 1990s, serving a different purpose to that it maintained in the modernist era. The term's origins coincide with the introduction of welfare state programs in Western European countries after 1945, and it is in relation to these that its first phase of currency should be interpreted. What the user is meant to convey in architecture is clear enough. The person or persons expected to occupy the work, but the choice of user in place of occupants, inhabitants, or clients, has held strong connotations of the disadvantaged or disenfranchised. It particularly implied those who could not normally be expected to contribute to formulating the architect's brief. Furthermore, the user was always a person unknown, and so in this respect a fiction, an abstraction without phenomen phenomenal identity. The user does not tolerate uh, attempts to be given particularity, as soon as the user starts to take on the identity of a person, of specific occupation, class, or gender, inhabiting a particular piece of historical time, it begins to collapse as a category. Deprived of its abstract generality, its value disintegrates. For its merit is, is to allow discussion of people's inhabitation of a building while suppressing all the differences that actually exist between them. Describing them simply as the users strips them, or any subgroup of them, of their discordant, non-conformist particularities, and it gives them a homogenous and fictional unity. It was just this tendency to abstraction that made the French philosopher Henri Lefebvre suspicious of the term. In the production of space, he writes, the word user has something vague, and vaguely suspect about it. User of what, one tends to wonder. The user's space is lived, not represented or conceived. As far as Lefebvre was concerned, the category of the, of the user was a particular device by which modern societies, having deprived their members of the lived, lived experience of space by turning it into a mental abstraction, achieved the further irony of making the inhabitants of that space unable even to recognize themselves within it, by turning them into abstractions too. Lefebvre's remarks are among the earliest attacks upon the user. Yet for Lefebvre, use and, use and user were by no means wholly negative concepts. 
Indeed, his ultimate desire was to see users regain the means to appropriate space and make it their own. He was, as he put it, for appropriation and for use, and against exchange and domination. Use is what would unify spatial practice against all the forces that, it, that dispersed it. Use corresponds to a unity and collaboration between the very factors that such dogma, dogmatisms insist on dissociating. A similar view of the emancipatory power of use against functional determinism is to be found in the writings since the early 1960s of the Dutch architect Hermann Herzberger. Use is a recurrent term in Herzberger's articles and it is clear that he sees the whole purpose of architecture as to enable users to become inhabitants, to create for the users the freedom to decide for themselves how they want to use each part, each space. The measure of an architect's success for Herzberger is the way spaces are used, the diversity of activities which they attract, the opportunities they provide for creative reinterpretations. Herzberger's analogy for describing this process is language, the relation between a collective given and individual interpretation as it exists between form and usage, as well as the experience thereof, may be compared to the relation between language and speech. However, this very particular positive sense of the user did not enter general currency until the 1990s. Until then, the most common reason for interest in the user was a source of information from which a design could proceed. It is hard now to appreciate the excitement and anticipation surrounding studies of the user in the early 1960s. An English school's architect, Henry Swain, speaking in 1961, announced that to evolve techniques to help us to analyze the needs of users of buildings is the most urgent task of our profession. Swain's choice of the word user in place of the more conventional client or occupant can be seen as serving at least three purposes. Firstly, Swain, like many other architects, believed that analysis of user needs would lead to new architectural solutions, to a truly modern architecture liberated from dependence on conventional architectural programs or formulae. The user would provide the material through which architecture might finally realize its potential. Characteristic of the confidence in the results that would follow from the study of user needs, although the term user was not employed in it, was the British Ministry of Housing and Local Government Report Homes for Today and Tomorrow of 1961, usually known as the Parker Morris Report, that recommended a new basis for defining the standards of state-subsidized housing. In it, the authors took issue with the previous policy of statutory minimum room sizes to which they objected because it tended to produce a conventional arrangement for the dwelling with little scope for flexibility either in the design or the subsequent use of the, of the dwelling. Instead of a minimum room sizes, they recommended a minimum size for the entire dwelling, arrived at by looking at the needs as a whole of the intended occupants of a dwelling. As they set out their rationale, this approach to the problem of design starts with a clear recognition of these various activities and their relative importance in social, family, and individual lives, and goes on to assess the conditions necessary for their pursuit in terms of space, atmosphere, efficiency, comfort, furniture, and equipment. The approach is flexible, questioning such widespread assumptions as that equal, flo equal floor areas should be devoted to sleeping, dressing, and sanitary needs as to all other needs put together, or that houses should generally have two stories rather than one, one and a half, two, two and a half, or three. The approach is also indirect, 
Arrangement and rooms are the results and not the starting point. Arrangement flows from the interrelation of the ways in which the needs can be satisfied within the limitations and opportunities provided by the site, the structural possibilities, and the cost. Rooms grow from the needs and provide for the needs. They evolve as a consequence of thought and not in the copying of what has gone before. Striking in this passage and wholly characteristic of the widespread interest in the study of the user were the confidence that, it, that attention to people's activities and needs would lead to a non-traditional architecture, and from a vagueness characterized by the words flows from and grows from as to exactly how this information about the user would inform architectural practice. Secondly, the choice of the term user may be understood in terms of the expansion of the functionalist paradigm. If a relationship was said to exist between buildings and social behavior, then it was necessary to have a word to represent those, those upon whom buildings were perceived to act. The user satisfied this need, providing, as it were, the required second variable in the functionalist equation. The user, therefore, may be seen as a result of the functionalist model and some of its unsatisfactoriness flows from the shortcomings of this model. The third purpose of the user was to sustain architects' belief systems during a period of astonishing favor and good fortune for the profession. The two decades after the end of the Second World War saw the growth of the welfare state in Western European countries and of welfare uh, policies in the USA. Within this political system designed to stabilize relations between capital and labor but without affecting any major redistribution of the ownership of wealth, architecture was widely adopted by Western governments as an important part of their strategy. Not only was it a matter of providing new schools, housing, and hospitals, but of doing so in a way that those who occupied these buildings would be convinced of their equal social worth with all other members of society. The task given to architects, and in the execution of which they were entrusted extraordinary freedom, was to create buildings that would induce, in the face of persisting social differences, a sense of belonging to a society of equals. For the many architects employed on public sector projects, it was necessary to convince themselves, and the public at large, that the client was not the bureaucracies or elected committees that would actually, that actually commissioned the buildings, but those who would actually inhabit them. Although these people were almost invariably unknown to the architects, the professional claims of architects to serve the greater good of society depended on being able to show that the true beneficiaries of the new schools or social housing were indeed those destined to occupy them. The user and the extensive analysis of user needs allowed architects to believe that notwithstanding their employment by ministries and governments, the people whom they truly served were the occupants of the building. By privileging the user, it could be claimed that the expectations within a welfare state democracy for the disempowered to be treated as citizens of equal social worth was being realized. It might, therefore, be said that the purpose of the user in the 1950s and 1960s was partly to satisfy architects' own belief systems, to legitimize their claim to be working for the underprivileged class while in reality working for the state, and partly to allow architecture to hold its particular and peculiar place within the welfare state democracy as the service which provided the appearance of a society moving rapidly towards social and economic equality when in reality such differences persisted. The decline of interest in the user and user needs corresponded to the decline in public sector commissions in the 1980s. Not only was the user no longer of value to architects, but moreover, as their social authority declined, 
the user became a positive threat, the personification of uncontrollable disorder that frustrated the architect's intentions. Perhaps another reason for dissatisfaction with the user has been that it has been that it's such an unsatisfactory way of characterizing the relationship people have with works of architecture. One would not talk about using a work of sculpture, yet with architecture there is still no better alternative, and a recent book has reinstated the word as a more appropriate term than either occupant, occupier, or inhabitant, because it also implies both positive action and the potential for misuse. By the late 1990s, it appears that user has lost its earlier connotation of the disadvantaged and disenfranchised and become a means for architects to criticize their own practice. It was a peculiarity of Lefebvre's book, The Production of Space, that use and user appeared in two contrary senses. Lefebvre's second emancipatory sense, also used by Hertzberger from the late 1960s, now seems to have displaced the previous sense produced out of the circumstances of the welfare state. Hmm. Wow. So that's the end of that chapter. That was a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm not sure that I totally understand the distinction between user and occupant or hmm. <clears throat> inhabitant, I suppose. Yeah, well I guess I guess what they're talking about is how that's changed over time and and for us maybe we don't see a distinction in those words, which is kind of, we don't see a distinction in the way we use those words, which is probably why it's important for us to read about it and consider that. Yeah, I mean, user, at this point that they made towards the end, about it being sort of an unsatisfactory term. Mm -hmm. I, agree, I agree with that because yeah. it's like- No, it's very yeah, not just, utility oriented. Yeah, very utilitarian. Yeah. Imagine if they made us make sections of use rather than well, that's, inhabitants. that's what sections. I was going to say. Is like <laughs> inhabitation seems to be a word that has been drilled into us since B1 here. Mm -hmm. and, and even now, like when I think about architecture, I really do think about inhabitation as being the primary thing. It's like, to me, really the thing. Yeah. And it's about the people. Yeah, your people living in your buildings. Yeah. Hmm. So. Interesting. Cool. Um, well, we have one more short chapter for you. Yes, flexibility. Flexibility. While we're turning our pages to flexibility, uh, just give a quick shout out to Stavros for lending me his book. <laughs> um, because he insisted that I do so. <laughs> and that's because your book's at home, because you read it every day? Yeah, bedtime stories, you know? That's right. Really puts me to sleep. Oh, no. <laughs> it's usually not very successful when I try to read before bed. <laughs> That's I cannot understand. When I try to read nonfiction before bed, I like reading fiction before bed. Mm, yes. Which is not architecture related. So. I mean, this is all interesting, but um, it, it is. it's written in a way that takes some time. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a little more brain power than I have before I'm about to go to sleep. So. I can relate to that. All right, so the next one is called Flexibility. Um, Starting off with some quotes here. The first one by Norberg Schultz, which is, in our time, the demand for flexible structures has come to the force. It's 1963. Has come to the fore. 
Oh, right. <laughs> it's a little bit too close to my bedtime right now. <laughs> Plus, I'm sick, so. Um, and then a quote here from P. Collins. Is that Phil Collins? <laughs> it's definitely Phil Collins. It's gotta be. And <laughs> I don't he know says, what uh, flexibility is, of course, in its own way, a type of functionalism. Mm. Thank you, P. Collins, for that. <laughs> Great. So, an important modernist term, particularly in the period after about 1950, flexibility offered hope of redeeming functionalism from determinist excess by introducing time and the unknown. Against the presumption that all parts of a building should be destined for specific uses, a recognition that not all uses could be foreseen at the moment of design made flexibility a desirable architectural property. As Alan Colquhoun has put it, the philosophy, the philosophy behind the notion of flexibility is that the requirements of modern life are so complex and changeable that any attempt on the part of the designer to anticipate them results in a building which is unsuited to its function and represents, as it were, a false consciousness of the society in which he operates. Although, as we shall see, particular elements of flexibility had been acknowledged in works of architecture produced earlier. As a general architectural principle, the word flexibility entered currency around the early 1950s. One of the earliest statements is by Walter Gropius, who in 1954 <coughs> set out his convictions thus. One, that the architect should conceive buildings not as monuments, but as receptacles for the flow of life which they have to serve. And two, that his conception should be flexible enough to create a background fit to absorb the dynamic features of our modern, modern life. By the 1960s, flexibility had become an axiom of architectural criticism. Louis Kahn's 1961 Richards Lab Laboratories in Philadelphia were criticized and gained notoriety because, quote, the buildings not mindful enough of demands for flexibility on the part of the scientists do not work very well. And James Sterling described in 1965 his own Leicester University engineering building, completed five years earlier, stated it had been essential to propose a generalized solution that can take change and has inherent flexibility. I just want to quickly <laughs> note that there's a plan for the Richards Laboratories, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I hadn't ever seen the plan, but I heard about how it, it was criticized and I had seen pictures of it and man it's like a bunch of square plans <laughs> <laughs> connected by hallways through the middle yeah so, so there's no space? circulation know. there's no circulation independent of the spaces yeah which is definitely questionable in a lot of instances <laughs> Huh. Yeah, and also it just goes right through the metal, which is maybe yep. kind of weird. Yep. So, anyway. Interesting. Um, the first of the controversies over flexibility was whether flexibility was better achieved by making the, works of, the work of architecture incomplete and unfinished in certain respects, leaving it to the future to decide, or whether the architect should design a building that was complete, though nonetheless flexible. A case for the incomplete solution was put by the English architect John Weeks, on the grounds that for many large institutions, such as airports or hospitals, it was impossible to predict the changes that might be required before the buildings became physically obsolete. And so the only viable solution was an indeterminate architecture. 
in which certain elements were left unfinished. Forceful opposition to this came from the Dutch architects associated with Team X. Ten. Oh, Team Ten. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Embarrassingly. Uh, for some inexplicable reason, Dutch contributions to the concept of flexibility exceed those of all other nations. Writing in 1962, Aldo van Eyck attacked flexibility and false neutrality. Flexibility as such should not be overemphasized or turned into yet another absolute, a new abstract whim. We must become aware of the glove that fits all hands and, and therefore becomes no hand. And in the same issue of Forum, Herman Hertzberger strongly criticized the results of flexibility. Flexibility signifies, since there is no single solution that is preferable to all others, the absolute denial of a fixed, clear-cut standpoint. The flexible plan starts out from the certainty that the correct solution does not exist, because the problem requiring solution is in a permanent state of flux, i.e., it is always temporary. Flexibility is always inherent in relativity, but in actual fact, it only has to do with uncertainty, with not daring to commit oneself, and therefore with refusing to accept the responsibility that is inevitable, bound, inevitably bound up with each and every action that one takes. In Hertzberger's view, flexibility can only ever represent the set of all unsuitable solutions to a problem, an argument he amplified in a subsequent article Flexibility does not necessarily contribute to a better functioning of things, for flexibility can never produce the best imaginable results for any given situation. Hertzberger's main objection was that architecture which tried to anticipate all future possibilities while choosing none of them produced boring results, with which subjects could not identify. Instead, he wanted single, distinctive, permanent forms that were polyvalent, a form that without changing itself can be used for every purpose in which, with minimal, minimal flexibility, allows an optimal solution. But Hertzberger's attack upon flexibility was also an attack upon functionalism and upon the tendency of functionalism to render human use into abstract activities. Even if living and working or eating and sleeping could justifiably be termed activities, that still does not mean that they make specific demands on the space in which they are to take place. It is the people who make specific demands because they wish to interpret one and the same function in their own specific ways. As we shall see, this desire to oppose the collective coagulation of individual freedom imposed by functionalism connected with another, altogether different sense of flexibility. By the late 1970s, <clears throat> flexibility was losing some of its appeal as an architectural quality. For example, James Sterling, earlier in an inherent of flexibility, was reported as saying apropos his design for the Stuttgart Stats Gallery, that he was sick and tired of the boring, meaningless, non-committed, faceless flexibility and open-endedness of the present architecture. The purpose of flexibility within modernist architectural discourse was as a way of dealing with the contradiction that arose between the expectation so well articulated by Gropius that the architect's ultimate concern in designing buildings was with their human use and occupation, and the reality that the architect's involvement in a building ceased at the very moment that, that occupation began. The incorporation of flexibility into the design allowed architects the illusion of projecting their control over the building into the future, beyond the period of their actual responsibility for it.
It is possible to identify three distinct strategies or flexibility in architecture. <coughs> Number one, redundancy. This is explained well by the architect Rem Koolhaas in small, medium, large, extra large. In relation to the Kopel at Arnhem, Arn Arnhem? A circular panopticon type 19th century prison. <laughs> Perhaps the most important and least recognized difference between traditional and temporary architecture is revealed in the way a hyper monumental space wasting building like the Arnhem Panopticon provides flexible, while modern architecture is based on a deterministic coincidence between form and program. Its purpose no longer an abstraction, like moral improvement, but a literal inventory of all the details of everyday life. Flexibility is not the exhaustive anticipation of all possible changes. Flexibility is the creation of margin, excess capacity that, margin excess, capacity that enables different and even opposite interpretations and uses. The spatial redundancy identified by Kulas in the Arnhem prison is a characteristic of many pre-modern buildings. It was a feature of, for example, Baroque palaces where rooms were not dedicated to specific uses. However, through this type of flexibility may now be though. Oh, however, though this type of flexibility may now be discernible in these older buildings, it was not described as such in their own time. Two flexibility by technical means. The exemplary modernist case of this type of flexibility, and apparently the first instance in which the quality of flexibility was so designated, was Rietveld's 1924 Schroeder House at Utrecht, where the open upper floor was installed with movable partitions. Oh, some of us might remember this one. In the words of the Dutch critic J.G. Watjes, writing in 1925, a system of portable screens has replaced the usual fixed dividing walls, thus providing a great degree of flexibility in the interior spatial division. The intention is that the interior can be altered daily according to the changing needs of the different times of day or night. There have been many subsequent modernist buildings in which there have been attempts to attain flexibility through making elements of the building walls, windows, even floors, movable. A particularly ambitious and noteworthy example as Baudouin, Lodz, Bodjanski, and Prouvé's Maison du Peuple of 1939 at Clichy in Paris, where morning use of the building as a market hall could be converted to afternoon and evening use as a theater and cinema by means of movable floors, roof, and walls. In the post-war period, Flexibility through technology shifted away from the ingenious systems of sliding or folding elements, though these continued to feature in many late, later modernist buildings, and concentrated instead upon the development of lightweight building structures and of mechanical services, which allowed climatic control of spaces without the need for traditional architectural elements at all. Particularly influential were the systems developed in the United States uh, the 1950s by Anton Aaron Krantz, <laughs> Aaron Krantz and Conrad Waxman for buildings in which all services were carried in the roof space. Intended so far 
sorry, intended so as to offer freedom in the layout and arrangement of school and factory buildings. These systems were seized upon by certain European architects. Jona Friedman in France, Constant Nieuwenhuis, <laughs> known as Constant, thank you, in the Netherlands, and Cedric Price in Britain, as holding the potential for something very much more, offering not merely flexibility within buildings, but releasing buildings from their traditional fixed city and making possible a city within which all buildings could be mobile. Friedman's demand that new, new constructions serving for individual shelters must, one, touch a minimum surface on the ground, two, be demountable and movable, three, be transformable at will by the individual, envisaged a city carried in a service structure within which everything would be mobile and flexible. Cedric Price's Fun Palace was a flexible education and entertainment center where an open framework of steel lattice towers and a high-level truss roof both provided support for short-life enclosures within and carried all the services and heating which could be directed anywhere within the overall enclosure. The Fun Palace was not built, but a smaller project of 19... 72 to 77, Cedric Price's Interaction Centre at Kentish Town in North London was the closest built example to this, ideally, to this ideal of a totally flexible architecture, achieved through technical means, <coughs> though it should be added that the Interaction Centre was also the result of a somewhat unusual and archaic design process. Anarchic? Oh. Anarchic. Anarchic. Oh. Also, it does not look like fun. No. It's like open web steel joists. It looks with horrific. Scary trailers sandwiched in between. Oh <laughs> and a few potted plants in concrete pots. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> um, oh, also, there's a um, handicap symbol on one of the trailers, and there's like oh a God. really big bump to get through the door. <laughs> Yeah, you... Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, there's some anyway. cool drawings, though, of the storyboard for it. I don't, I don't really feel like I, the party... I don't get it. ...goes with it. <laughs> anyway, maybe he, Maybe he was a genius. I don't know. <laughs> um, the Interaction Center was also the result of a somewhat unusual and anarchic design process where the supporting steel frame was erected before anyone knew what it was to contain and was left for a year awaiting further building while the various parties involved argued over what they wanted to put within it. The center Beauberg in Paris, though claims were made for its flexibility, was not truly so, and the fact that its flexibility was no more than emblematic has been borne out by the need for its recent lengthy closure for repairs. Oh, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> it was a feature of all the attempts to attain flexibility by technical means for the flexible the flexibility to be invariably perceived as a property of the building. This assumption that flexibility is achieved through the building and that it is the business of the architect to embed it in the design has been a general feature of the normal architectural use of the concept, and it is what sets it apart from the third sense of flexibility, which sees it not as a characteristic of buildings, but of use. Number three, as a political strategy, the critique of capitalism developed by the situation, Situationist International in the late 1950s centered particularly upon capitalism's tendency to commodify all aspects of everyday life. 
domestic life, leisure, and space had all in turn become removed from the realm of individual freedom by being separated into their functional components and turned into commodities with an exchange value. Part of the object of, part of, the object of Situationist International was to resist this process and to recover through the free realm of playful activity all those aspects of life that had been brought under capitalist regulation. In relation to cities and urban space, the particular strategy developed was the detournement, the misappropriation of existing buildings and spaces with already determined uses. Some of these ideas are to be found more developed in Henry Lefebvre's The Production of Space. For Lefebvre, the capitalist domination of space, both by imposing functional categories upon it physically and by imposing an abstract schema through which the mind perceives space, was one of capitalism's most invasive acts. Functionalism stresses function to the point where because each function has a spe specially assigned place within dominated space, the very possibility of multifunctionality is eliminated. Against the asphyxiation of everything by abstract space, Lefebvre envisaged a new sort of spatial practice which would restore unity to what abstract space breaks up, to the functions, elements, and moments of social practice. Lefebvre had in mind actions like the early Christians co-opting of the originally secular Roman basilicas for their worship and which in time became the model for Christian churches. In this case, the act preceded the form which became in time associated with the purpose. For Lefebvre, resistance to dominated space can only be affected by appropriation, by the assertion of the freedom of use through the user's realization of the space's flexibility and multifunctionality. But he writes regretfully, the true space of pleasure, which would be an appropriated space par excellence, does not yet exist. In Lefebvre's idea that through use, through positive acts of appropriation, the functionalist domination of space can be broken, flexibility acquires its political connotation. As far as Lefebvre was concerned, architects and architecture, complicit in the practice of abstract dominant space, had no part whatsoever to play in the realization of flexibility. Use was a political act to be directed against architecture. But the architects constant, Iona Friedman, and to some extent Hertzberger too, envisaged uh, architecture as enabling an active fulfillment of diversified use. Although both constant and Friedman were interested in the technical means of achieving flexibility, it must be stressed that the ultimate aim of flexibility was to disturb the established property relations and functional classifications set up by capitalism. This is evident in, for example, Constance's article, The Great Game to Come, written in 1959. We believe that all static, unchanging elements must be avoided, and that the variable or changing character of architectural elements is the precondition for a flexible relationship with the events that will take place within them. The stresses upon the events to take place, for which the mobile architectural elements are merely the precondition. Within this scheme, flexibility is not a property of building, but of spaces, and it is a property which they acquire through the uses to which they are put. If flexibility has been a confusing word, it is surely on account of having, to, uh, of having had to perform two contradictory roles. On the one hand, it has served to extend functionalism and so make it viable, but on the other hand, it has been employed to resist functionalism. This distinction has not 
often been acknowledged in architects' use of the term. Hmm. Cool. There it is. There it is. <laughs> what does this all mean? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it talks a lot about functionalism, which is funny because there wasn't a question on functionalism per se in... In the questions? In No, in the the reading on function. Uh, There's a big section on functionalism, but we didn't really dig into it in great. the seminar. <laughs> and now I feel like it would have been good to hmm. do that. But basically I think functionalism kind of became associated with modernism and kind of gave it a bad name because mm-hmm. people just thought all really, I don't know, ugly, super quote-unquote functional looking buildings were modern buildings right yeah huh. so, well yeah looks like there are some interesting questions here for the uh seminar yeah luckily a lot of them seem to just be opinions so you can kind of just bring it i think i mean that's usually how <laughs> it works and remember it's only 250 words total for four questions so it's very easy thank you steve parcel yes and uh well, that's it. Thanks for joining, Shane. Thanks for having me. So this wasn't a very exciting podcast, you guys, but... Uh... We have nothing interesting to talk about. <laughs> okay, so goodbye. Yes, good luck out there. <laughs>